Section 7, Top 10 Trends in DeFi I don't think I can possibly be more excited about the future of decentralized finance, or DeFi. Most people don't realize how close to disaster we were this fall in the U.S. when it comes to the free and open future of crypto's financial backbone. Let me tell you, the crypto Twitter mob did not stop the DCCPA and its killer DeFi provisions. Instead, the public spectacle of the bill's leaked draft tightened the DC reviewer circle and could have put FTX in the driver's seat for the final revisions of future-altering law for open crypto protocols. We dodged a bullet with FTX's well-timed implosion. I don't want to argue counterfactuals, but I mention this only to warn that DeFi's headwinds are still very real. We can rejoice that we live to fight and build another day, but we also have to keep our eyes on the prize, and there is no bigger political foot race right now than the one between DeFi builders, gridlocked legislators, and overreaching regulators. If we want to take crypto to the next level, then the builders and the legislators will have to get simpatico immediamente and hold the bureaucrats in check when it comes to DeFi oversight. Salvation lies within. It's time for security and audit standards, risk waivers, comprehensive community disclosures, and apps that work beyond speculative teaser rates. We need more apps to work for everyday users and to find use cases that make us proud. And we need to clearly explain what DeFi is and define what the policy solution should be. Where should we invest in 2023 to strengthen crypto's financial services sector? Section 7.1. Revenge of the DApps. Are the L1 protocols still fat, or are applications that make crypto interesting starting to bulk up and capture value? Ethereum transaction fees are weighed down this year, and the competitive dynamics with dApps have shifted. Uniswap, Lido, and OpenSea, the three largest Ethereum-based apps, now generate more monthly fees on a combined basis than the entire Ethereum L1. More volume is shifting off Ethereum to its scaling solutions, Polygon and Optimistic Rollups in particular, or to the new customized app chains, DYDX on Cosmos, where the dApps have more control over their value capture mechanisms and consensus rules. Aave and Uniswap launched their protocols on various emerging networks this year and came to quickly dominate their segments in terms of volume and TVL. This showed that the shelling point for most users isn't around chain-specific native versions of lending and decentralized exchange, but of the top applications by users. Just as Binance will likely steamroll the top domestic Thai-first exchange in Thailand upon its entrance to the country, Aave is likely to dominate in whichever digital country, or L1, it enters. Why then does DeFi still sit at all-time lows versus Ethereum? I'm bullish on DeFi dominance versus Ethereum in 2023, absent ham-fisted new regulations. As I said in the intro, I don't want to gloss over regulatory risk. Tornado Cash usage plummeted following the U.S. imposition of sanctions on the protocol and the arrest of one of its core developers. Aave decided to geofence its front end from U.S. residents shortly afterwards, effectively eliminating one of its largest user bases. Concerns about regulation over software and front ends are so acute that some investors are proposing compromises that call for the regulation of the front end services. You might not like it, but we'll be fighting for DeFi in court for many years. Still, the total assets under management for DeFi remains massive. The global financial services industry is valued at nearly $23 trillion, so a $15 billion DeFi sector doesn't seem frothy to me at all. Required reading, DeFi business models, the convergence, and... DeFi's Invisible Revolution. Section 7.2. Uniswap, the final DeFi unicorn. I wrote about a lot of the core plumbing in DeFi in the 2021 theses. That's two reports ago. Covering things like automated market makers, yield farms, vaults, flash loans, oracles, and permanent, scratch that, divergence loss, and more. 
It's pretty amazing that since then, we're down to a single billion dollar DeFi protocol in Uniswap, despite the incredible progress that's been made in the two years since. Here's a good refresher on DEXs and how they work, as well as a video on Uniswap V3 that covers why people were so excited about its release. I think it could be an unassailable protocol in the AMM category. V3 has proven to be a true 10x improvement when it comes to the working capital these DEXs require to run reliable, low-slippage exchanges. The concentrated liquidity that professional market makers provide has arguably created more liquidity for major asset pairs than even the largest centralized exchanges. Paradigm is, of course, talking its book here, but I tend to agree that there's not much alpha left in designing new AMM invariants. That doesn't mean there aren't other areas in which DEX protocols can compete. AMMs might compete around offering dynamic fees that adjust with volume or volatility or improving the performance and reliability of their reference pricing oracles. Or we might yet see winning central limit order book models. Zero-X has become the backbone of several new NFT and gaming marketplaces, even as some skeptics speculate whether on-chain order books are dead thanks to the constant, expensive, high-latency stream of transactions they must update to match buyers and sellers around a central limit. Otherwise, most AMMs will fail to stand out from the pack. PancakeSwap, dominant on BNB smart chain, settles transactions on fairly centralized infrastructure and relies on a close relationship to Binance. Various other AMM DEXs are confronting their own unique challenges. Curve has been hijacked by mercenary board members, remember V-tokens, who have brutalized its tokenomics while Balancer has been dealing with hostage negotiations with an activist token holder. Sushi has had a nightmarish stretch in reorganizing its leadership, Osmosis was hit hard by the Terra collapse in Q2, and Serum was outright killed by FTX. There's only one thing I know for sure in the DEX space. Other DEXs are not going to dethrone Uniswap with tokenomic tricks or marginal price improvements. You don't compete on fees, you compete on value. And Uniswap has proven that Uniswap is Uniswap's biggest competitor when it comes to creating incremental value for its users. The only question I have for 2023 is how the community will design and implement the protocol's fee switch, in which uni token holders will vote to finally direct a portion of protocol trading fees to the treasury. I doubt most Uniswap liquidity providers will push back much at this point. Given Uniswap's dominance, fee switch won't hurt them much, and I'm reminded of the Steve Jobs negotiation with HarperCollins before the iPad's launch. There's nothing wrong with charging sustainable and fair fees for a valuable service. In fact, there should be more of that in DeFi, and an 80-20 split between uni LPs and governing token holders feels fair. We cover many of the top DEXs in depth for our quarterly reporting customers. Here's the state of Q3 reports for Uniswap, Balancer, OneInch, and Osmosis. Stay tuned in January for the full Q4 updates, and if you'd like your community covered in 2023, please get in touch. Required reading, expanding Uniswap's addressable market. Uni giveth, and uni taketh away. Bot activity on decentralized exchanges. Uniswap and Genie. And finally, the chronicles of Uniswap, the token, the switch, and the wardrobe. Section 7.3, real-world collateralized DeFi. It's shocking how fast we went from most customers don't care about decentralization to the only customers who weren't wrecked this year use DeFi lenders. The irony is that centralized lenders were the ones to blow up on exotic bets and toxic token collateral while the biggest DeFi lenders appear to have been running much cleaner loan books. In MakerDAO's case, at least, they've been piling into, checks notes, U.S. Treasuries? MakerDAO began dabbling in real-world assets, real estate, invoices, trade receivables, and commercial loans in 2021, and they now count fully reserved dollar stablecoins as the majority of the collateral underpinning the DAI stablecoin. 
They added $500 million in exposure to U.S. Treasuries this fall as risk-free yields ticked higher and DeFi yields collapsed. You would think these protocols would be upside down now that crypto risk premia are rising and real-world yield is a bit easier to come by. Instead, it's been the opposite. It's a far cry from August when MakerDAO's founder, Rune Christensen, claimed that he was considering proposing a rotation out of USDC and other real-world assets at risk of seizure in the wake of the tornado cash sanctions. That didn't happen, though. Real-world assets account for 57% of Maker's total protocol revenue, up from less than 10% in July. As rates have risen, Aave decided to get in on the over-collateralized stablecoin game as well. Its Go stablecoin, native to the Aave protocol, will allow protocol facilitators to mint a limited amount of Go in a trustless manner and allow users to borrow Go while earning yield on deposited collateral. The Aave protocol will capture 100% of interest revenue from Go, compared to 10% on its other assets, so the success of Go would be a boon for the project. The official deployment date for Go and Aave v3 on Ethereum is expected to be soon. These decentralized lending protocols are A, more transparent, B, better collateralized, and C, seem to have a much firmer grasp on how to do risk management and rotate into whatever risk-free assets are best. We cover many of the top lenders in depth for our quarterly reporting customers. Here's the state of Q3 reports for Maker, Aave, Compound, and Liquidity. Stay tuned in January for the full Q4 updates, and if you'd like your community covered in 2023, please get in touch. Section 7.4, Under-Collateralized DeFi Lending. Over-collateralized DeFi lenders generate most of their yield from the demand for leverage from margin traders and market makers. Those yields have dried up as the risk appetite and opportunities for margin trading have collapsed this year. On the other hand, under-collateralized lenders like Goldfinch and Maple Finance offer yield in under-collateralized positions and have been able to generate double-digit yields from this riskier form of lending. You might be asking, isn't this what just blew out a dozen large centralized lenders? And you'd be correct. Well, it appears that DeFi's under-collateralized lenders maintained a higher standard of risk management than their centralized counterparts. We wrote over the summer about how 99% of Maple's loans were returned with interest despite the period of extremely high volatility for crypto in Q2. Reality is starting to catch up with them. Lending to delta-neutral crypto market makers worked well to avoid the fallout from Terra. Maple's delegates may have been more prudent with counterparties, even through the fall. But crypto delivers risk in unexpected ways. Contagion from FTX led Maple to liquidate loans worth $37 million, reducing its active loans to just $41 million. Of that, $10 million is now distressed. Goldfinch still has a pristine track record, in part because it lends to non-crypto borrowers only, less reflexivity. But the protocol does have its own unique risks, such as higher exposure to developing economies and the fintech sector. Maple Finance has a strong track record, as did Genesis Capital and BlockFi. But in a full risk-off environment with poor on-chain identity, reputation, creditor infrastructure, this market has gone ice cold. Goldfinch is down 90% plus since its public launch at the beginning of the year. Maple is down 90% plus since its April high. It's doubtful that crypto will ever compete with legacy banks at scale without under-collateralized lending. The question is whether we have the right building blocks, credit scores, insurance, and yes, credit default swaps that make this sector of DeFi viable in the short term. Can we use smart contracts, on-chain data, soulbound NFTs, and DSOC identities to replace loan officers? I hope so, but it feels like it may simply be too early. Required reading, Maple Finance, Sweet and Steady, and Goldfinch Finance, Let's Get Real.
Section 7.5, Superfluid Collateral and Synthetic Stakes. Liquid staking protocols made it more palatable for thousands of Ethereum investors to stake ETH and help bootstrap the security of Ethereum's post-merge proof-of-stake blockchain. A game for whales, a 32 ETH minimum is required to stake, with significant duration and technical risk, you didn't know when your staked ETH would become available again in the lead-up to the merge, which had been fraught with technical risks and years-long delays, and high opportunity cost. You can't use your ETH in the NFT or DeFi markets. It was open to all thanks to protocols like Lido and Rocket Pool. These staking protocols were able to catalyze thousands of incremental ETH stakers thanks to the creation of new synthetic assets, staked ETH, and Rocket Pool's RETH, that accrued Ethereum staking rewards for a 10% fee atomically and were liquid and tradable as soon as they were minted. Post-merge, the economics of staking are even more compelling. With ETH inflation falling to near zero and validators earning real revenue, tips and MEV, on each process block, the real returns to stakers have spiked to 6%. Further, when withdrawals go live on the Ethereum staking contract as part of the Shanghai upgrade planned for sometime in 2023, the risk of staking ETH and synthetic instruments will fall considerably as the minimum duration for staking will fall to just 27 hours. There will be little to no reason to avoid staking ETH, and the result could be a boon for Lido and Rocket Pool, and to attract participation for more centralized players. We expect DAOs, exchanges, and other institutional ETH holders to stake in mass post-EIP-4895. DAOs have a combined $11 billion in treasury assets. Coinbase has even more under custody. There aren't many more automatic annuity streams in crypto. Lido and Rocket Pool strike me as the next major long-term blue chip for DeFi assets. I expect Lido will be the top fee-generating DApp in 2023 across all of crypto, and Rocket Pool's market share could 5 to 10x in the new year. Word of warning, until ETH holders can withdraw funds from the staking contracts, there is ever-present technical and duration risks to these protocols. You'll recall from earlier that 3AC was decimated by forced selling of Steeth after its peg to ETH broke amidst the market turbulence in May. I think about those as dramatically reduced risks going forward, but it's likely that there will be things that break in the synthetic stake token market as more exotic structures get proposed to compete with Lido, though I'm excited about Eigenlayer's potential. Final thought. Remember last year when JP Morgan projected that staking could be a $40 billion per year industry by 2025? Right now, there's a mere $13 billion in staked ETH circulating at 6% per year, a figure which would have to grow 50x or more to hit JP Morgan's $40 billion staking revenue threshold. 50x on Lido's current revenue would be $1.6 billion annually. Nice. Required reading, pop, lock, and rocket. And evaluation model for Lido DAO. Section 7.6, the perp walk, DYDX as an app chain. DYDX has strong product market fit despite botching its decentralization and token value accrual scheme out of the gate, though I think silly regulation is partly responsible. Q3 marked the fourth consecutive quarter in which token rewards paid out of DYDX outpace revenues earned, this time to the tune of $22.6 million. Things are soon changing for the better. The launch of DYDX v4, a dedicated app chain on Cosmos, will provide a prime opportunity to decentralize the protocol and fix the leading on-chain derivative protocol's tokenomics. Validators in v4 will run the DYDX order book instead of the centralized DYDX trading entity, realigning token holders and protocol revenue. The community is aware of the coming tailwinds too. In Q3, governance voted to wind down two different token incentive programs and lower trading rewards to reduce token inflation. 
and the sheer number of innovations DYDX is looking to insource and customize as a vertically integrated app chain, base L1, custom modules, off-chain order book network, Oracle network, alchemy-like indexer, mobile applications, and a custom wallet will be something other communities will be watching intently. Coming migration will be risky, but it could also create the highest quality perpetuals product on the market and compete effectively with centralized alternatives. That's timely, given that one of the world's largest marketplaces for crypto futures just disappeared. Required reading, evaluating the Cosmos chain versus L2 decision for investors and builders. Section 7.7, on-chain asset managers. I was surprised by how poorly on-chain asset managers have done this year, though I suppose I shouldn't be. The fact that I haven't thought about them since last year's report is telling, and with DeFi yields plummeting and investors focusing on capital preservation and minimizing counterparty risk, there aren't many value adds to yield optimization services. We're back to where we were in 2019 and early 2020, when this sort of DeFi application felt like picking up pennies in front of a Zamboni of risk, smart contract, governance, and counterparty. It feels like the puck has moved over to investment DAOs instead, covered in the next chapter. Though I'm scratching my head at how protocols like Enzyme and IndexCoop have struggled so mightily in creating customized indices for crypto. That feels like a trend whose time has come, and I wrote last year about how ETFs were one of the most successful financial innovations in the past 30 years, with some $6 trillion in net assets, lower management fees, and higher net returns for their investors. Good active managers could have made a killing this cycle as memes run out of steam and fundamentals take over. Rules-based asset managers are now much easier to create with code, and protocols that allow for a proliferation of on-chain funds and indices should have a stronger showing in 2023, provided they are built overseas. The SEC definitely won't like these. I'm going to run back this prediction for one more year. There's opportunities for smart beta products, sector-specific plays, portfolio copy trades, and more. The biggest near-term opportunity could be shadow stonks, like we've already seen on Synthetics, Mirror, scratch that, UMA, etc. Consider that the total value secured by Chainlink Oracle's smart contracts that leverage their data infrastructure is now $16 billion, down 80% year over year, but still 2x higher than it was in 2020. And you have the foundation for something big, reliable Oracle data, synthetic stonks, and indice smart contracts. All we need are CNBC talking heads for distribution, and we're full stack, fam. Section 7.8, New Novel Markets, Two Truths and a Lie. Can you spot the lie? A, anyone who follows me knows that my side hustle to crypto is ESG investing. Whenever you can invest in a provably sustainable, green, and socially conscious organization, you should. And I'm glad more people are starting to agree with me, even if it's only on a voluntary basis. So you can imagine how excited I am about crypto protocols like Nori, Flow Carbon, Klimadao, and Toucan, which are laying the groundwork for corporations and individuals to reduce their carbon footprints by revamping the broken carbon trading markets. By tokenizing carbon offsets and establishing reputable on-chain carbon marketplaces, these protocols have the power to bring transparency, liquidity, and aggregation to the global green markets. I'm bullish on regenerative finance. B. Real estate finance is one of the largest markets in the world, so it should be expected that there will be a massive opportunity for crypto protocols to innovate in this area. Physical real estate plays that leverage crypto haven't taken off yet, such as Proppy, tokenized real estate, Milo Credit, collateralized mortgage lending, Investa Equity, fractionalized ownership, 
and I'm skeptical that there is a near-term path to crypto's meaningful participation in such a heavily regulated and physical asset class. That said, there are pockets that could be interesting. Housing prices are up 33% since the start of the pandemic, and the average 30-year fixed-rate mortgage is at its highest level in over a decade, up 87% since last December. The majority of commercial institutions have ceased accepting new applicants for home equity loans since the 2008 recession, and I can tell you from firsthand experience that the lenders hate when the majority of your net worth is in crypto. I wonder if this is the sector where under-collateralized lending could actually work. Buy a crypto-friendly bank, deposit holdings, and secure loans against your own house and crypto. It's not necessarily a cost saver, but it could boost the accessibility of the mortgage market to more home buyers. I've got to admit, I'm much more excited about crypto protocols that fractionalize NFTs and virtual property than I am about physical real estate plays. When in doubt, natively digital property will be easier to secure on natively digital ledgers. The physical markets will always come last. C. I believe in prediction markets. Okay, now guess the two truths and the lie. Give up? Fine. It's the prediction market one. Prediction markets feel like a use case for crypto that's always one year away. I'm surprised they yielded essentially nothing of value in a high-stakes election year this year. Today, there is a paltry $2 million at stake on bets surrounding the 2024 Republican presidential nomination in the U.S. on Polymarket. I think Avishal is largely right. Prediction markets converge to the two biggest use cases. One, speculating on the price of assets, and two, sports betting. Number one is DeFi. I do think someone will do a sports betting DEX, but it requires sports-specific oracles. Legal sports betting is growing without the added risks of crypto, and no one wants to gamble on tokens right now. Nothing to see here. Section 7.9. DeFi Censorship. As I said up top, I'm not sure that we should take for granted that DeFi will survive the global regulatory gauntlet next year. DeFi is seen as the highest risk subsector of crypto by members of Congress, and it will be challenging to effectively communicate a different story. The value of crypto writ large is a complicated story to tell, just add DAOs. It ratchets up the complexity to 11 for people who do not live and breathe the details of our industry. I predicted last year that we'd see a bifurcation of DeFi into CDeFi, known teams, and Anonfi, pseudonymous developers. With the Tornado Cash sanctions and detention of one of their core developers, that is unfortunately holding up all too well. Some teams are already preparing for a world in which DeFi protocols are regulated at the interface and labs levels. It's a hard compromise that might have to be temporarily swallowed in some jurisdictions to protect the underlying protocols themselves from crackdown, then fought like hell in courts. It isn't new for the front ends of major protocols run by centralized teams to implement certain controls and restrictions on their sites. Uniswap Labs delisted tokens last year, Aave Geofence US users recently, and most browser wallets and front ends are doing some level of IP tracking for AML compliance purposes. Because some teams have already set precedent, the expectation might be that all communities have the ability to comply with laws deemed applicable to DeFi and should do so without fuss or incident. Last year, I wrote about the CS Skynet team's efforts to secure unstoppable front ends in Web3 via a project called Homescreen. I still hope something like that succeeds, but it feels like we're a couple of core building blocks of privacy tech and maybe a couple of brave legal victims away from seeing that become a reality. As bravely as I'd like to flout laws I disagree with, I'm not spending a single day in Bahamian prison, American prison, or serving time as a guest of any state. There are smarter fights to pick and stronger allies to solidify first. There's no glory in defeat. 
the majority of DeFi users and volume in DeFi may be KYC'd within the next several years. We can take comfort from the Tornado Cash case study that other non-KYC transactions will always be processed. Despite the furor around network-level censorship following the OFAC sanctions, 30-40% to 40 of Ethereum's blocks are still processing transactions to and from addresses on the U.S.'s naughty list. There's no reason to believe the 70-30 dynamic won't continue elsewhere in DeFi. Just like the broader economy, the whitelist users will drive the majority of volume while we figure out how to weed out the blacklist and protect the gray area. Section 7.10 Bullish unlocks to down bad Methinks it's time to take security and sustainable token designs more seriously after a year in which we experienced $3 billion in on-chain hacks. Mango, Poly Network, Nomad, Wormhole, Badger, and Harmony Horizon were among the nine-figure hacks, but there were many others. I expect the countless security auditors to keep raking in cash, along with economic security modelers like Gauntlet and Chaos Labs, network monitors like Open Zeppelin and BlockNative. I also think we'll see more efforts around developing global security standards. Please, devs, in 2023, do something. We can't have more bad prices, especially if hackers can ultimately get to us with mere eye contact. Quick bonus. There's no such thing as bullish unlocks. That was a bull market meme. I can't believe I said this last year. There's more trust in VCs to be professional secondary sellers on the way up than panic retail sellers on the way down too. So FDV likely matters more in well-distributed tokens than ones with big, long-term oriented backers. That is such a horrendously ice-cold take. My bad.